Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, as we said, tomorrow is Cinco de Mayo, a big day for the tequila business. So we are very fortunate today to be able to talk about the tequila business and the spirits business. We welcome Jenna Fagnan, co-founder of Terramana Tequila. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about your tequila and the brand. It's great to meet you guys and chat with you today. Yeah, the Terramana Tequila, we launched right when the pandemic was starting. We launched towards the end of March. And as an entrepreneur, you're in a situation where you think, wow, what do you do now? Um, but our business partner partner and fearless founder, Dwayne, we call him DJ, um, <laughs> he said, he, you know, he, he had been working on this and been wanting to do this for years. He um, grew up with um, a family who loved tequila, and it was very much for him um, one of those things that was about bringing people together, whether it was good times or bad, he said in his family. Like if um, someone had just gotten a promotion, the family would crack open the tequila and have a drink. Um, but also if, you know, someone unfortunately passed away, they it brought them together as well. And so he said, you know what, let's just go at it in a really soft, quiet manner. Um, but obviously anything but happened. And the consumer just really latched on to Terramana Tequila. Um, for many different reasons um, during the pandemic, and we had an incredible well, record-breaking first year. Well, uh, our director, Ken Fellow, says it's very smooth. He says it's it's quite good. I haven't had a chance to try it yet, but I love tequila, and I love The Rock. What's it like working with DJ? He's so committed to everything that he does. I don't know if that would drive you crazy or if it's a benefit. Who doesn't love him? What you <laughs> see is really what you get. He is so interested in the business, and he was really committed to say, I want to understand it. I want to find out about it before I do anything, and I want to do it the right way. And so it, um, it doesn't drive you crazy. You just have such incredible appreciation for someone who is so busy, but he is, you feel like he's constantly working on the Terramana business. And he uh, ensured that he went down to Mexico, really studied it, um, worked really closely with our Mexican family partners to develop this. He is all in and he's engaged every single day. Jenna, I'd love to get a sense of, you know, the spirits industry. Boy, you guys launching right in the middle of a pandemic. Good planning there. But the spirits industry just <laughs> really took off in 2020 for obvious reasons, I guess. And you're you going up against about- Clooney. Yeah, exactly. How do you think about the business kind of going forward? Yeah, it's really interesting. You're totally right. Spirits was up uh, over 20% in the last year. Um, What's interesting is tequila dollar sales were up over 53% in the last year. So there's just this real shift in consumer behavior away from, say, the older um, spirits such as vodka into something that is more flavorful and interesting. And consumers really are caring about provenance and how something's made. And I think for us, for Terramana, that is, we're really excited about that. Because when people ask questions about it, we have just such a really authentic, handcrafted story um, that it really, people, excites people. 
And of course, um, there's a new campaign. I've seen Dwayne make guac on his Instagram account. And and now that a restaurant's reopening, you have a, a campaign where you get people involved in social and you pay them back for their avocado dip. Yeah, obviously during the pandemic, it was a conversation constantly with DJ and the team. And he was saying, how do we help out when hospitality is such an important part of our economy? And so we all felt like the time was right to really encourage people to come back into their restaurants, however they safely, however they feel safe about it, whether it's takeout, dine-in, dine-outside. And so he said, let's, let's go at this really hard, use his incredible social media reach that you referenced um, to encourage people to go out there. So um, right now it was started May 1st and everyone can still take advantage of it through Cinco de Mayo, which is tomorrow through May 5th. Um, and they go out to any restaurant that serves Terramana tequila. They order a Terramana and they will get their guacamole reimbursed by the rock. So we're you take a picture guac on the rock. You take a picture uh, eating your guac, drinking your Terramana, post it on guacontherock.com, and Dwayne pays you back for your guac order. <laughs> Fascinating uh, business. And we wish you, of course, the best of luck. Jenna Fagnan there um, co-founded Termana, Terramana Tequila with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I've been making his pancake recipe, which I also found on Instagram. <laughs> Let's continue our discussion of the cryptocurrency market. I guess today you could sum it up on the word volatility. I'm looking at Bitcoin. It's off 4% today, 2300 bucks. It now trades at $54,500. Yet, when I go over to Ethereum, symbol uh, tickers XET. It's Ethereum, dude. Ethereum, thank you very Ethereum. much. Ethereum. Ethereum, yeah. setting all-time high again today, Matt, uh, up another uh, 34 points, 33,022. So uh, going both ways here. Let's get a... A clear view of what is going on. We welcome Greg King, CEO of Osprey Funds. So, Greg, when you see divergence in the crypto market like we see today with Ethereum and Bitcoin, does that tell you anything? Yeah, it tells me that we're in what they're calling alt season. So, this happened uh, last time around, the big bull run with uh, Bitcoin. Bitcoin's the, the, the biggest, you know, the oldest crypto. That's what most people think of when they think about crypto. Um, and it leads the way. It's led the, the way this time in this bull market uh, where it crossed its all-time, uh, previous all-time high that had been in place for about a thousand days in back around Thanksgiving. Um, but I think it's it's giving up leadership to Ethereum, the, the second biggest crypto out there and all the other coins that people like to call altcoins. Um, and I think the reasons for that are uh, legitimate. Uh, Ethereum is the backbone for uh, DeFi for NFTs for a lot of the innovation that's happening in the crypto space, and people are coming to recognize that. And the fact that people like Mark Cuban are tweeting about it that that helps to drive awareness as well. So it doesn't surprise me to see that divergence. And frankly, I I like it because it uh, um, it shows that crypto is not just one big monolithic block. There's different things going on. Bitcoin is one thing, Ethereum is another, and it goes on from there. You know, it's quite cool, um, uh, the diversity, and there are different use cases, and they're set up differently. Ethereum doesn't have the scarcity that Bitcoin does, right? Bitcoin, um, no more than 21 million Bitcoins will ever be mined, but there's no cap on Ethereum. Does that make it worth less? 
Well, it's just about the rate of that inflation, which I think the way they've set it up is is, is done somewhat reasonably. And it's, it's really about the uh, supply-demand dynamic and whether uh, supply of coins would outstrip demand, in which case that would, of course, be problematic for the price um, overall. But with the potential use cases for Ethereum starting to, um, you know, just thinking back three or four years, these were uh, twinkles in the eye of a lot of people. A lot of people talked about a lot of ideas. Uh, but now these are real projects and real values being exchanged and traded in the DeFi space. Uh, you have the whole non-fungible tokens, NFTs, where people are trading around digital art and things like that. So they're actually use cases, and, and many of them, most of them, are built on the Ethereum network. I got to say, to me, um, NFTs makes even less sense than Dogecoin. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> why do I care if you buy the NFT of a LeBron dunk, whatever that is, when I can watch the mm -hmm. LeBron dunk on YouTube all day long for free? I can't get my head around it. Yeah, I'm sort of with you on that one. Um, but, but don't mistake that for kind of the only potential outcome for what an NFT is, right? NFT just means a, a non-fungible token. It means there's a finite supply of them and they represent certain things. So if you're tokenizing real estate, if you're tokenizing other assets that need a better way to be exchanged digitally and trustlessly, those two would be NFTs. So so I'm sort of with you on, on you know, <laughs> tokenizing Top a shots. random movie clip or something. Uh, I was never a baseball card collector either um, <laughs> or an art collector, but, uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. So I think that's the, one of the easier applications um, to kind of uh, gain some foothold in the retail uh, mindset, especially when you have sports stars and, and all those kinds of celebrities endorsing them. So, Greg, I'd love to get a sense of who's buying these things when we talk about Bitcoin or Ethereum. Is it – Yeah, I'd love to get a sense of retail versus more institutional. What do you, what do you know about that? <clears throat> Well, again, it sort of cascades down. I think Bitcoin at this point is really uh, getting a serious look by a lot of institutional investors. We don't have to, you know, look very far to see, you know, whether it's announcements by uh, insurance companies or Fortune 500 companies that are putting it on balance sheet. Uh, Bitcoin is, is moving definitely into the institutional space, as is Ethereum. I think where um, retail investors are more involved is around the byproducts. Um, of these other tokens, NFTs, and things like that. But again, it, even that space is sort of barbelled, right? Because you'll have, uh, let's call them retail investors, just, just self-starters, people who are digging around this space and understand this and are following what's going on. But you also have extremely smart money, uh, Silicon Valley VCs, that are buying up some of these assets as well. So you really have, it's kind of the middle of the spectrum, the the more cautious, the, the kind of the pension funds, uh, the institutional investors that are managing uh, public money, mutual funds, those types. Those are the people that I think are going to be last to participate. It's funny, you know, last week, the European Investment Bank issued its first digital bond on Ethereum. And it's so, I mean, at this point, um, no one cares, right? That would have, 10 years ago, that would have been headlines galore. We would have been covering it wall to wall for a week. It would have been just insane to think about. And now it seems so normal when the European Investment Bank 
issues a, a digital bond on Ethereum that it doesn't, no one bats an eyebrow. So the question is, does this become, is this just a normal part of life now or, or, or does it go away? Does it become, I hate to say the tulip fad because that didn't even really happen that way, but does it, does it become a big bubble that we all um, regret like bell bottoms in 10 years? No, no, no chance of that happening, in my opinion. Um, this is this is here to stay. It's just a question of how much is it going to continue to morph and evolve. Take Ethereum, for example. It's it's basically software, right? So for the uh, European Central Bank to say we're issuing a bond digitally, uh, nobody would care about that. The question is just who owns the software, you know? So maybe they in the pr prior mm. world, they would use IBM software. Now they're using a decentralized software that we call Ethereum. So I think it is yep. getting normalized, and I think that's a good thing. All right. Very cool to have some time with you, Greg. Thanks so much for joining us. He is the chief executive officer of Osprey Funds, talking to us about digital currencies, digital networks, just becoming a normal way of doing business. This is Bloomberg. Let's bring in Ira Jersey. He's our chief U.S. rate strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Ira, um, today we're actually seeing some bond buying, at least in the 10-year right now, the yield down to 156.58. But I saw an interesting story on the terminal when I woke up this morning that the uh, Treasury has quadrupled the amount of money it's going to need this month in order to pay for the stimulus to over a trillion dollars. Are we going to see mad issuance? Um, so no is, is the simple answer, and and th that's from their original estimate back in February. It, it, the market was expecting pretty close to what they announced. They announced a net borrowing of 463 billion dollars for uh, for the the current um, fiscal quarter, and that was compared to R475, and a lot of other people had 400 and 425. So it's right in the range of what most of us were expecting. Uh, you know, after we got the 1.9 trillion dollar fiscal stimulus. So ironically the Treasury Department is still issuing so much debt um, that they they probably won't have to um, increase any of their um, any of their coupon issuance right now, uh, probably for the next year. And believe it or not, next year they might actually be able to cut it, which uh, is something that maybe a lot of people uh, didn't think was possible just a couple of months ago. All right, Ira, you know, the discussion that we're hearing in the marketplace here is uh, centering around inflation more and more. And the concerns are, OK, we see inflation, whether we look at commodities or, you know, other parts of uh, uh, the economy. The question simply is, is it transitory as per Federal Reserve Chairman Powell or is it something more? What are you looking at to get a feel for that? Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm looking deeply at some of the components of uh, the Consumer Price Index and the uh, PCE deflator, which are the two kind of primary consumer price gauges that, that we look at. And, and what you see is, you're, you're right, Paul, you see things like goods prices going up. I mean, you just saw that we have a record trade deficit, right? Those numbers came out just a few minutes ago, and that suggests that, you know, we are importing a lot. But those are goods, right? And in the U.S., only about 20% of what we spend money on are goods. It's just that there are prices that you see when you go into a food store, or you go to Staples, or you go to you know Home Depot, or you go to your mom and pop shop at the corner. So you see those prices regularly. But we consume services, and and a lot of those services are not provided by big companies that are going to have earnings calls and talk about how their import input prices are going up. So so it's the mom and pop places that I think where we miss a lot in the financial markets that are going to be holding inflation down. 
So you look at, at core services, so that's services excluding energy and food, and inflation there has halved uh, what it was in 2019. So you're talking about a really big slowdown in, in price growth of services, whereas goods prices have gone uh, significantly higher. So, so, so this this dynamic, uh, if it if it persists, is going to be, um, you know, maybe keep inflation lower than than the market's currently expecting. That's fascinating. I mean, listen, Paul and I have had a number of guests on recently, Ira. From the Northeast and um, from the South as well, I think someone from Myrtle Beach in a hotel, somebody in a restaurant chain in Florida, they all told us they can't get employees. So clearly a lot of those services haven't opened up yet, right? They haven't opened back up yet. Um, And I wonder if those figures will hold once they finally convince people, you know, the unemployment benefits run out in September um, to come to come into work and if they're going to have to pay them more to do that, then they're going to have to raise prices, won't they? Well, they, they probably will and, and maybe compress their margins a little bit to keep those prices competitive. I, I think it's, it's not a matter of will we get inflation that gets to 2% for an extended period of time. I think, like you mentioned, it, it's a matter of timing, right? So if we can't open back up until October, but, but remember, it's not just all of a sudden we flick a switch and everyone gets rehired on October 1st because unemployment benefits went out, right? Now it takes you six months to ramp up. You have to train these people. You now have... You you know, maybe new staff that weren't with you before. And then so so it's a matter of, of how long it takes for those services prices and, and the input prices for services to feed through, which is all wages, by the way. It's, right. Wages is the only thing that really matters for, for service prices. Um, so, so I can see that in, say, 2023, us getting to a sustained 2-ish percent inflation level. But that means for the Fed is that they can, they'll be able to afford to be patient until we see um, that sustained 2-ish percent wage uh, uh, inflation growth because you have uh, sustained wage growth. And, and that takes a long time to feed through the system. Um, and, and, but I think it will. It's just a matter of, you know, are we getting a little ahead of ourselves here thinking that we're going to have 3% inflation for the next two years? I don't think so. We didn't get to talk about uh, the 4th, May the 4th. May the force be with, be with you. you always. Just just twenty <laughs> seconds here, Ira. You got a geek. podcast? You're talking about Star Wars? Yeah, we're talking about Star Wars. We're streaming. Uh, we talk about streaming with Geetha uh, Raghunathan about uh, from BI about the future of streaming, and then uh, I get on and nerd out with a couple of my other BI colleagues talking about the Star Wars franchise. It's great <laughs> stuff. For me, the first three movies are the only ones, still the only ones that I really enjoy. I don't know if people have you, have you not new. seen Have you not seen Rogue One? Rogue One is phenomenal. I have. I have, but it's not Empire to Don't me. Don't get Ira in any case, started. In any case, uh, Ira, thanks very much. I'm going to check out the podcast as well. You can get that on SoundCloud or anywhere that you listen to. Find your, your podcast. Ira Jersey is our chief U.S. rate strategist. This is Bloomberg. Well, this U.S. economy is certainly beginning the reopening phase. We're starting to see that in a lot of the economic data come out in terms of durable goods orders, in terms of personal income. Uh, and certainly the, the Federal Reserve is doing its part as well as fiscal stimulus. Let's get a lay of the land of this economy. We do that with Edward Price, former British trade official, and current political economy adjunct uh, professor at NYU. Edward, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, the Fed met last week talking about continued lower for longer, but there are some persistent concerns creeping into this marketplace about inflation and that it might not be as transitory as the Fed believes. What's your view there? Thanks, guys. 
So honestly, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, <laughs> I'm confused, right? I'm confused. And I think that's because the Fed wants me to be confused and wants us to be confused. You're right to point to that contradiction. Um, and what's happening is we're seeing this incredible shift in monetary policy at the Fed towards this new approach called the flexible average inflation targeting or FATE, right? Now, you know, you read through it, you look at it, and it says FATE is a commitment to let inflation actually run above target before rate hikes, which is a, a big change from, from the forecasting culture, um, a big change in, in the practice of economics, um, and maybe something that sounds sensible. But look, I said I'm, I'm confused. Why? Well, it's also very strange um, because FATE redefines the 2% inflation target as an average, right? So how do you do that? You say if inflation is below 2% in any first period, it should be above 2% in any second period. Um, now, apart from the fact that that kind of moves away from the stable prices fixation that central banks have had for years, it's also very, very vague. And that means, I think, in my opinion, the policy is a deliberate injection of uncertainty. Nobody knows how long that second period will be. Are we looking at uh, data that suggests a recovery, or are we looking at this framework? It's, it's really not clear. Well, and this takes us back to, it wasn't long ago that there was no inflation target, right? That uncertainty has been with the Fed forever. That's right. And we've done almost too well on Ford guidance. And I think the problem now is that fate may well end up pitting the credibility of the Fed uh, against its mandate, right? Or at least against one part of the Fed's mandate, which is the aforementioned stable prices. Um, so, you know, thought experiment, right? Let's say the Fed does achieve something like 2% for whatever a sustained period means. Uh, and you're right to say, look, we're already seeing some inflation, but maybe that's superficial. So let's say we get into this good place that fate suggests we can. That good place is where the problems start. Because on the one hand, right, the Fed has to say, look, we promised to run above 2% for some period. So now we have to run above 2% to keep our promise. Um, that protects your credibility, but it damages stable prices. Now, on the other hand, if the Fed says, oh, look, just kidding, we've achieved 2%, maybe it's time to abandon fate. Maybe it's uh, time to start thinking about uh, future rate hikes. That protects stable prices, but it damages credibility. Um, so that's the fork in the road I'm talking about. That's why I'm confused. All right. Uh, it, it's fascinating, uh, to say the least. And it just takes me back to Ben Bernanke, if you remember, 10 years ago, was on 60 Minutes. And he mm -hmm. said, we're not worried about inflation. We can deal with that. No problem. And everyone seems to take him at his word on that. I'm sure they can deal with it. But the no problem part is um, is the part I think that uh, you have to think about. Can the Fed easily tackle inflation if it comes on too strong? And then you know, what happens to the markets? So, yes, the Fed can tackle inflation if it wants to. Um, it, can, it can do what Paul Volcker did, uh, famously, right? But if it does that, it, that's going to rail exactly against everything that it's been saying it wants to do, uh, particularly with the labor market. So, you know, Bernanke was very confident. He had a lot of reason to be very confident at that time. Um, but there's always an element of uncertainty. And I think if you look at what Powell was saying at Jackson Hole recently, there's more of a confession as to uncertainty. So that makes the fact that fate is a departure from Ford guidance. If I was being cheeky, I, I might describe it as Ford misguidance. Very, very interesting, right? Yeah, it's very interesting that, that central bankers have to introduce some kind of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, the other famous meme in central banking is, of course, Mario Draghi's whatever it takes. Mm. Um, that was right. That was Ford guidance. That was confident. But that's because Draghi didn't think he was going to have to back out of it. 
right? He was promising right. not just you're right. He was promising not just a large scale of monetary intervention, but also a direction. So you know, last week Powell said something like, "As long as it takes." Um, Ford guidance isn't dead in the sense that he's yep. still promising easy conditions, but at the same time, he's not going to tell you when he's going to stop. Edward, it, it, it wasn't long enough. I hope we can get you on for longer next time you join us. Edward Price, former uh, British trade official, currently a political economy adjunct at NYU. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.